0: Open the Word of God, and that doesn't mean the false versions that some of you have. Open the Word of God to Genesis chapter 3. Please, Genesis chapter 3, there is a battle for the Bible. And I want all of you prepared, all of you to defend the words of God that He's given us, lest any of us be moved away from the precious Scriptures that God has given us. I preached earlier. From Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through 21, that when God says something, we do not consider opposition to it, questions about it, or doubts that may assail our souls. We do not stagger at the promise of God. But being strong in faith, we give glory to God, and we go straight ahead being fully persuaded that what God has promised He is able also to perform. Satan is at war against the words of God. He has been at war against the words of God from the very beginning. It's the first conflict you read about in the Bible. It's the last conflict you read about in the Bible when the warning is given not to add to or take away from the words of God. Because of the impregnable fortress of faith laying hold of God's words, Satan comes after us to destroy that faith in God's words In several ways, but here's three of them. Number one, take away the words. Corrupt the words. Number two, destroy the ministry so it no longer preaches the words, but preaches fables. Which is true of the perilous times in 2 Timothy 4. Number three, throw darts of doubt at your soul so that you don't believe the words that you hear that are preached to you. Do you follow me? That's found throughout the Bible. We are to hold up the shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. And those fiery darts of the wicked are the darts of doubt that are thrown at our souls. So the devil throws darts of doubt. He keeps preachers from preaching the words of God. And he corrupts the words of God so that they can't be preached. Let's look at that example right here in Genesis chapter 3. Before we read chapter 3, or a little bit of it, let's look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, because there we have the words of God. Genesis two sixteen, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. There are the words of God. Great liberty. Eat of every tree of the garden freely. I've made it for you. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of it, thou shalt surely die. So we come to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. This is the ruin of our race right here. This is the ruin of our race. God told Adam and Eve that they could freely eat of every tree in the garden but one. It was a free offer of every tree. And He plainly declared the consequences if they ate from the forbidden one. Now what does it tell us about the devil? He was more subtle than any beast of the field. He was subtle. To be subtle is to be cunningly crafty in deceiving others. Treacherously cunning. And religious liars have been that way ever since. They never come out and say, I want you to worship the devil with me. That would give them away too quickly. Just like a counterfeit bill is seldom printed with the words, I'm a fake. It doesn't work. You've got to be close to the truth for it to work. And so the devil was subtle. He was cunningly crafty. And so how does a cunningly crafty devil Alter the words of God to damn the human race. How does he do it? He first of all raises the question. Some of you are very familiar with this process of going through these verses. Remind yourself of it. I'm reminding myself of it. But we've got children in here that need to remember these things. What's the first thing the devil does? There's a question mark at the end of verse 2. At the end of verse 1. Yea, hath God said... Did God really say? There's a question mark there. As soon as you question the words of God, you are starting down a dangerous path. You are doing the opposite of what Romans 4 taught us to do, aren't you? You are considering things outside God's Word. God said to Abraham, I have made thee a father of many nations. God told Abraham, Look at the stars, so shall thy seed be. That was enough. There was no consideration And there wasn't any need for questions. The devil, first of all, raises a question. And that is what is true of every Bible version that has come out in the last 124 years since the revised version out of England. A questioning of God's words by changing God's words and casting doubt upon the words that the English-speaking people had had without a peer, without a competitor for over 250 years. Questioning God's word. The poor people sit in pews today and hear a better rendering would be. The original says, a better translation, let me read it to you, from such and such a version. And so they hear all this and they go home and they are questioning the words of God because the question was posed to them by their ministers who are representatives of the devil himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 15 tell us that those ministers are false prophets, false apostles. They make themselves out to look like ambassadors of righteousness and light, but they are truly the ministers of Satan. Because to cast doubt upon the Word of God, you are doing what Satan has done from the beginning. So first of all, in the first verse, we see that the devil was subtle. That means he's crafty. He tries to sneak in the changes rather than openly saying, I hate God and His words. That wouldn't work. So he comes and says, are you sure that's what God said? Yea, hath God said, Eve, did God really say that? That ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now God didn't say it any way like that, so he's already altering the text. God said, thou mayest freely eat of every tree in the garden. He puts God in a bad light with his question that God's not being very fair with her. He reverses the emphasis of freely eating to an emphasis of not being able to freely eat. Now, what's the big error in this passage that's not even said, but we all understand it? The big error is that Adam let Eve talk to the devil. Adam should have been there protecting her, she shouldn't have been engaged in any conversation with anybody including radio preachers or any other preacher, she should be learning from her husband and he can help filter truth from error because that's the way God arranged marriage. If the woman will learn anything, let her ask her husband at home. If he has to meet with a pastor to get the answer for his wife, there's not a bit of shame in that at all. But it's, it's being filtered through the husband. Adam did not do that, so we have the Eve and the devil in a conversation about the words of God and there is no conversation about the words of God except God said it. That settles it. Right. The woman said in verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She's already leaving out one word. What is that word? Freely. freely. She's leaving out a word, though she's trying to take a little bit of a stand. Just notice the degeneration of the communication and the correspondence and the exchange between the devil and Eve. We may eat of the... No, that's not what God said. You may freely eat. God is merciful and gracious. To you, Eve, the devil has sown a doubt in your mind that maybe he's not as gracious and merciful as you thought he was. Satan then added just one little word to the Bible. What is that one little word that he added? Not. Not. God said, Thou shalt surely die. Satan said, Ye shall not surely die. God said, Thou shalt surely die. Satan said, Ye shall not surely die. Now, is that one little word, does it change the doctrine at all? Does it change the doctrine considerably? Does it reverse it? Yes. Yes. With the doctrine altered, he proposed an interpretation demoting God and exalting man. Do you know why God's doing that? Let me tell you something. There's potential for you, Eve. You have a lot of potential, Eve. You have the potential of being like God if you'll just eat of that fruit and oh is there in, is there something inside a woman that will jump at some at an offer like that what's it called in the bible first john 2 the pride of life and then we read the next verse that she listened to him and she looked at the tree and if you lead, take your eyes off the words of god and look at anything you are going down because what is in you will latch on to what you see because we walk by faith not by sight She should have told him, get lost. If you want to talk to anyone, talk to my husband. He'll put a hurting on you. She should have got away from the devil. But she entered into a conversation with him and it degenerated until she turned her eyes from the faith in God's words to the sight of the tree. And look at what she found. And we all have within us a nature that wants to sin. And the only way we can keep from sinning is to keep our faith resting on God's word and believing it and obeying it. As soon as we get our eyes off it, as has been already told to you by a brother today that I'm very thankful for... Don't look at those trees. Don't look at this world. Don't look at your circumstances. It'll take you down. Look what it says. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there's the lust of her flesh, and that it was pleasant to the eyes. There's the lust of her eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. It looked like it just might have that result. The pride of life. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the whole human race was damned to an eternity in hell. And this is why we all die right here. No one else can tell you where death came from. I'm telling you where death came from. They can't tell you. They tell you that everything is a result of evolution. That you get rid of everything by evolving the species until you get rid of everything negative. If evolution is true, why haven't we evolved away death? I've told you that many times. And I'm telling you on the authority of God's Word we know where death came from. And it came from the fact that the words of God were overthrown by Satan. And we do not want to allow that. We are in a war for our Bibles. They are trying to take away God's words from us this day, and we are going to fight them. Now, I have limited time, so here's our process. I want to show you and remind you, and some of you, I hope, could stand and quote these eight passages to me, though I fear there's not very many. Eight passages in the New Testament where Jesus or Paul argued from single words. Right. Why are these eight passages important? Because it shows us that the Bible is a message from God that doesn't, that doesn't bring concepts, it brings words. As soon as you let someone tell you that the Bible brings concepts, you are lost. Because then those concepts are expressed with different words and God has used precise words to convey His truth. It's called a paraphrase. If you ever find the word paraphrase regarding any Bible, it's not a Bible. It's a novel about the Bible. A paraphrase phrase means, I've put God's words in my words. If you ever hear the words dynamic equivalence, that's the way they translate today. Dynamic equivalence. Oh, that sounds so sophisticated. Us simple little people will never be able to figure that out. I try to give the equivalent meaning in modern English in a dynamic way because society is changing that reflects what God meant by His original words. And so you've changed the words again. And that's how they translate Bibles for the last 124 years except for a couple that claim formal equivalents. But don't worry about that. Formal translation. Whenever they do that, they're altering words. The Bible does not convey... Merely a message or an idea or a concept. The Bible is God's words. Every word of God is pure. Man shall not live alone by bread alone, but by every word of God. Not by every concept, by every word. Okay, Matthew 22. Let's very quickly remind ourselves of the power of our Bibles. Let me remind you of a timeline. When Jesus refers to the Scriptures, and He refers to Scriptures written by Moses, they were 1,500 years old. Do you think He was using the originals? Based on the affection that the Pharisees had for Jesus, would they have offered Him the originals? Did they have the originals? Not a chance. Did the scribes have the originals? Or were they scribes because they had spent their lives copying? 1,500-year-old copies, Jesus Christ uses them like this. And if you if you really want to get it, for those of you that think that I'm preaching old material, then prove it to me next week by being able to come up to me and tell me where all eight of these are found. Right. This is what you should know about the Bible. Where does Jesus and Paul argue from individual words? Matthew chapter 22 and verse 32. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is dealing with Sadducees. Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. Jesus dealt with them this way. He said, have you ever read what the Scripture says to Moses? Verse 31, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying... Now, how was it spoken to them by God? It was in the Bible. Do you know where it is in the Bible? It's Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. God said something to Moses, and this was 1,500 years, and Jesus is going to argue from one single word to prove the resurrection. Moses was 400 years after Abraham. And God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus said, haven't you read the Scriptures? He assumes that there's going to be a certain word there that's going to serve His purpose for a doctrinal argument. The present tense am versus the past tense was. God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob meant that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still around. So there was a resurrection of the dead. Jesus preached the resurrection of the dead, not from Job 19, not from some verse that said, there is a resurrection of the dead. And there are verses that get very close to that, like Psalm 49 Jesus went to give us an example of how I ought to preach to you. Amen. And that's to focus on every word of God. Amen. Right. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Matthew twenty-two, thirty-two. 32. That is how Jesus proved the resurrection of the dead from one little word. Praise His name. Amen. I love the Bible. I love it. There's no one that preaches like that anymore. You get the message. Go, go take a look at the... I didn't even pass that out. It's it's such you can't even find where you are in it. The message that's used by Rick Warren, you know, they'll take ten words of, of the scriptures, turn it into thirty words of secular language that you would hear on the street, all the words have been corrupted. You can make no arguments like this. You say, Well, does the message have I am back in Exodus three six? Yes, of course. Sometimes they get it right. If they didn't get it if they ever if they didn't get it right at any of the time, it wouldn't be any threat to us. The devil didn't come up and say, "I'm the devil. I'm going to hell, and I want you to go to hell with me." He came up and said, "Yea, hath God said?" Right. We'll show you. We'll show you where the message doesn't know how to get it in just a minute. Just hold on. Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. Now we go to Matthew twenty-two forty-six. This is easy. You've only had to memorize one chapter so far, Matthew twenty-two. Here's another one. An argument based on one word. Jesus asked the Pharisees, "What do you think?" Of Christ. This Messiah that you're looking for, whose son is he? This is verse 42. They say unto him, He's the son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? All the Pharisees were looking for was a natural deliverer to deliver them from Roman oppression. And Jesus said, tell me, what do you think about the Messiah? And Jesus proves from this that the Messiah had to be God because He was David's Lord. And He argued it from one word that was preserved in Scripture. And that was the second occurrence of Lord in Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord. And they all knew that passage was talking about the Son of David. But David called his son, Lord, just like Saul of Tarsus called his son, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Are you with me? One word. Now, why didn't Jesus go to Isaiah 9, 6, where we have that a son is going to be given unto you, a child will be born, and his name shall be called the mighty God? Could he have done that? Why didn't Jesus do that? Because Jesus was giving us a second illustration that He argued doctrine from individual single words. The second occurrence of the word Lord in Psalm 110, verse 1. If David then call Him Lord, how is He His Son? And no man was able to answer Him a, question, a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask Him any more questions. He just tore them up with a verse they loved because they couldn't wait for David's son to get there and deliver them from Rome because they figured he'd be a warrior like his father was, David. And he is a warrior. Let me tell you, he is the Lord of Hosts, he's King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, he's the blessed and only potentate. But he wasn't going to fight some stupid battle down here on earth for real estate. He already had his real estate. A city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And it's a heavenly country, as Hebrews 11 tells us about it. And He won that battle. That land is all His. And it's all mine because I'm His. And I hope it's all yours because you're all His. But notice the argument. Matthew 22:46. The Lord said unto my Lord, that second use of the word Lord, proved that the Son of David was also God. They couldn't believe what he had just done to them. An argument from one word. Right. Now, if, if you have a heart that is regenerate and you're full of faith, you are already fully convinced I am going to fight for every word that God's given. Right. If Jesus, when he used the scriptures, went after every single individual, went after individual words like that, I want to read the Bible that way. I want to hear the Bible preach that way. I want to defend the Bible. I'm glad the pastor is preaching against the corruption of God's words because look what Jesus did. John chapter 8. There's eight of these. We need to pick up the pace. I know. It's my fault, not yours. John eight fifty eight. Oh, this is so sweet. Amen. Verse 56. Let's get 56 first. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Listen to those snotty little things. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I was. I'm glad I got someone in here that Amen. knows that verse. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, if he had said before Abraham, I was, you know, that'd be pretty powerful. He'd be, he'd be declaring that he was at least 2,000 years old. But he didn't say that. He added a little bit more. Before Abraham was, I am. I am that I am. I am Jehovah, the one that revealed himself to Moses by the name I am that I am. Oh, did they like that? What did they want to do to him in verse 59? Verse 59. Did they understand Scripture at the word level? Oh, yes, they did. Did they know that there was a difference between the present tense verb am and the past tense verb was? Did they know that? Oh, that's what got them so upset. But notice, Jesus made an argument based on the present tense versus the past tense of a verb. Before Abraham was, I am. You know, we would say before Abraham was, I was. But, oh, he was saying something very different. He was declaring that he was God. By one word, one verb tense, we have to fight for every one. What a pressure. I do love it. And I don't love just the marks on a page. And I don't kiss it like a Catholic. Because I read it and I preach it and I love it. And when I look through it and I say, this is unbelievable, Lord. That is so beautiful. Don't you get excited when you read the Bible? John ten thirty five. John ten thirty five. So far we've had Matthew twenty two thirty two. Matthew twenty two forty six. John eight fifty eight. Now John ten thirty five. And oh this is this is a good one. They're picking on Jesus because he said he was the Son of God. Verse thirty four. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. And it is. Psalm 82, Exodus 22, verse 35. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? John 10:35: Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken about one individual word. What is it? He said there's a word that you can find in your Old Testaments that is unalterable gods. He said, if you'll look up in your Old Testaments, you will find that when God gave His commandments and His rules and His precepts to the leaders of Israel, He called them gods. If God called them gods, how much? what do you think He's going to call me, whom He sanctified and sent down from heaven? He's going to call me the Son of God. It's consistent with your own scriptures. Notice what a fine point that He's drawing, though. Why didn't He just go to Isaiah 9... 6 or Isaiah seven fourteen, and say, Emmanuel, God with us. He went to that passage because he's giving us examples, brethren, of arguing from a single word, the word God's. If God stands in your Bible, he's telling these Pharisees, then I am justified in calling myself the son of God because your leaders and all they had was God's scriptures given to them. They called God's. Are you with me on what, how powerful that is? He's arguing from a single word again. The word God's. And he said, Scripture cannot be broken. Do you know what that means? That's the word that is always going to be there in all Scripture. Right. When you go to Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, Psalm 82, 1, and Psalm 82, 6, you are going to find the word God's in the Scriptures. Galatians 4, 9. Galatians 4, 9. You may have forgotten the, what the active and passive voice of a verb is. But an active verb is when the subject is doing something. And a passive verb is when the subject is being, had, having something done to it. And it's the it's same verb. Same verb, just a different voice. Here we have it in Galatians four nine. Paul's writing along and he says this, "...but now after that ye have known God." That's the Galatians doing something. That's the Galatians knowing God. They had heard the truth, they had believed the truth, and they had been converted. They knew the God of the Bible. "...but now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements?" Whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Here Paul changes from them knowing God to God knowing them. And he makes a point that the one is more important than the other, showing that Scripture needs to be very careful with the voice of verbs. The verb's the same. To know something. To know someone. And he said, after that ye have known God. That's the Galatians knowing God. He says, but rather that God knows you. And so he changes the voice of a verb there to make the point that the passive voice is more important because that's God knowing us rather than us knowing God. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now, where were the promises made to Abraham? Where were they written down? Where were they recorded? Where were they noted in a book and written in a table? To be for the time to come forever and ever. The book of Genesis. So when you go back to the book of Genesis, what word had you better find in every promise given to Abraham? Seed, singular. Because all the promises were made to Abraham and his seed, Singular, because as Paul explains, if you will go back and read your Bibles, you legalizing Jews, you Pharisees that have come out of Jerusalem and are trying to corrupt the churches of Galatia, if you'll read the Scriptures, the promises were to Abraham and his seed, and that singular seed means Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean your natural descendants as a nation. It doesn't mean your racial descendants as a race. It means in Jesus Christ are all the promises fulfilled. So when you go back... In the Old Testament, what would you expect to find in the King James Bible in Genesis 12, 7, 24, 7, 15, 15, and 16, 13, 15, and 18, 17, 18? What would you expect to find? Seed, of course. He's arguing from a single letter the difference between seed and seeds. This is why I preach the way I do. This is why I defend the King James Bible and its words. Because Jesus and Paul argued from single words and single letters. And Paul knew that if they went back and looked, there had to be the word seed there, or his argument wouldn't have meant anything at all. His argument was based on scriptures that cannot be broken. The word seed would be back there in the book of Genesis. 1,500 years later, he, had still, he still had confidence. Right. Hebrews 8, 13 Hebrews 8.13, this is a simple one. Paul's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah wrote down the words of God 500 years before Paul used this argument. And God said, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Here's what Paul does with that sentence from Jeremiah 31. Hebrews 8.13, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now Paul got quite a bit out of the word new, didn't he? If God in Jeremiah 31 said I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, that meant that the other covenant that He had made with them was old, and something that's old, you throw it away because it's no longer useful. Now that's a lot to get into one word, especially when you're dealing with the way to worship God. Do you follow that? In that He saith new, he must have made the other one old. And if the other one is old, then it needs to uh, be thrown away. From, how did he get that? From the word new. So what if somebody is writing to work in Chicago and wants to make a Bible for Billy Graham? And he reads Jeremiah 31. And he says, you know, as I was meditating this morning, I read that the new covenant is a better covenant. So I'm going to write this Jeremiah 31. God's going to make a better covenant with the house of Israel. That should shed more light on this for people because new just doesn't have very much meaning and better has more meaning. What's happened? We've lost Paul's argument. Hebrews 8.13 has the word new, which means Jeremiah 31 had better have the word new. Chapter 12 is the last one. Hebrews chapter 12. Oh, these eight are so precious. They're precious. Thank You, Lord. Hebrews 12.26 Whose voice then shook the earth. That's when He gave the first covenant to Moses on Mount Sinai. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now He hath promised, say, yet once more... I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. This is the very same point He made in Hebrews chapter 8. We've got a new covenant, which makes the other one old, and old things get thrown away. God said, yet once more, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. He said that to Habakkuk, 400 years before Paul made this argument, Paul says God's done that shaking and the old things have floated away being the old covenant. Because he goes on to say, wherefore, because of that, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. We've got the things now that can't be moved that can't be shaken away. And it's all based in the words, yet once more. There was only to be one more shaking or changing in the way of worshiping God after Habakkuk. And it was in the days of Paul, and Paul said it had happened in his day, and it's it's already happened 2,000 years ago, so that we have the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was all based on three words, yet once more. if Yet once more does not allow for further shakings. What was shaken is gone. What is left is there forever. It will never be shaken away because there isn't another shaking to occur. Because he said, yet once more. Those are eight. You could write them down in the flyleaf of your Bible. You could write them down in your heart. Those are eight passages that you can show people that God and the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul argued from individual words of copies of copies of copies that were 1,500 years removed from the originals in the case of anything from Genesis and Exodus. Is that precious? That is why we argue for the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the words of Scripture. Every word needs to be preached. Okay, pick up those false Bibles that I passed out. These are so simple. Some of you already know them. I want everyone to memorize them. Just a couple of them. I'm only going to give you a few. Here's the question you want to ask people when you see them trying to sell you a new Bible. Who killed Goliath in your Bible? Second 2 Samuel 21.19 is the reference you want to embed in your brain. 2 Samuel 21.19 and ask the question, who killed Goliath in your Bible? That's why I carried an NIV with me at Michigan National Banks. I wanted to find a Christian that read the NIV or had it preached to him on Sunday so that I could show him that his Bible didn't even know who killed Goliath. This is a gift from heaven right. for us. Second Samuel twenty-one I'm going to read it in the Word of God. You follow along and see if there's any words left out that change the meaning. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Origem, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Your Bibles, or almost all of them, have left out the words, the brother of. Because your Bibles teach that Elhanan, the son of Jerorajim of Bethlehem, killed Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There are not two Goliath, the Gittites, who both have a spear like a weaver's beam. Those are identifying marks that make it impossible for there to be another one. A Gittite is a man from Gath. Read your Old Testament and you'll know that. This is the Goliath that David killed with a stone from his shepherd's bag. But those versions that you have in your hands do not even know who killed Goliath. And men pulled out their pens. They were Dr. So-and-so. And and signed off on a Bible that had Hanan killing Goliath when every child that's been to Sunday school for more than six weeks knows that David killed Goliath. Don't forget that verse. The New American Standard Version that they teach at Bob Jones University that is closer to the originals and that is more accurate than the King James Bible has Elhanan killing Goliath. You want to remember that verse. Three words made a pretty big difference, didn't they? You say, well, how do you know for sure? Well, because God said it. See, God's already put His stamp of approval upon the King James Bible so that I know that 2 Samuel 21, 19 is correct. And you say to me, do you have any more evidence? I do. I do. It's because God said to compare spiritual things with spiritual. So I looked up the Chronicles passage for the same event. And it's 1 Chronicles 20 and verse 5. And do you know what it says over there? It gives me a little bit more information. It says that Elhanan killed... Lamai, the brother of Goliath, it gives me the man's name. He killed Lamai, the brother of Goliath. 1 Chronicles 20 and verse 5. So the King James Version makes perfect sense. In 1 Samuel 17, I have the detailed story of David killing Goliath when he put five stones in his shepherd's bag and ran down to meet Goliath. We know David killed Goliath in that place. Then when we come to 2 Samuel 21, we know that this is a list of David's mighty men and their great accomplishments. And one of those great accomplishments was killing the brother of Goliath. And it was Elhanan, one of David's friends from Bethlehem, that did that. And 1 Chronicles 20 and verse 5 tells me what the Goliath's brother's name was. Lamai. I've got quite a bit of information from a King James Bible, don't I? And that was done way back in 1611 when men were ignorant. They were chasing rabbits with sticks for supper. They did not know how to translate a Bible back then. What in the world could they have done without the fortress of the faith located on Wade Hampton Boulevard? They were—they did an excellent job because God was with them. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Look at your Bibles. They don't even know who killed Goliath. And you ought to remember 2 Samuel 21, 19. You can write in the, in the margin, 1 Chronicles 20 and verse 5, where you can track down that it was Lamai. You know what you ought to be asking me? How in the world could educated, intelligent, wise men who claim to fear God and love the truth of Scripture sign off on a Bible that has Elhanan killing Goliath? How could it happen? I have that answer as well. You have it as well in your Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I praise Thee that Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, I thank Thee, O Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and revealed them unto babes. Amen. You were just given a gift from heaven. We've been given a gift to know about this, and they have been blinded. The Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1.19, Where is the scribe? Anyone that claims to be a scribe that can improve God's words, and that doesn't come humbly, trembling on their knees, before the Lord God, where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The Bible says that. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And in their wisdom, they think they've helped God by getting us a better Bible. And what they've done is have another man killing Goliath. Because God blinded them so they could not see. They wrote down the wrong thing and they signed off on it. Here's a 1611. Do you think they had it right 400 years ago? You're right. Your he edition has the brother of. Last Lord's Day, we looked at Mark 1-2. Remember Mark 1-2? It's one of those ones you don't want to forget. Mark 1-2, as it is written in the prophets in our Bible. In their Bibles, it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Mark 1-2. But that quotation in Mark 1-2 is from where? Malachi. But they say it's from Isaiah. Mark 1-2. And New Testament critics signed off on Mark 1-2 when it said, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, though it's a verse from Malachi. Can you believe that? God is showering you with love right now because He's given you the eyes to see and He's given you someone to show you these things for you to be wiser than the wisest of them. It is precious. It is precious. How in the world could you sign off on a New Testament that says that in Mark 1-2 when their own footnotes say, we know this verse came from Malachi? I hope you're seeing it all tied together. I will make foolish the wisdom of this world. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? What's a disputer called in 20th century or 21st century language? A textual critic. If you have scribe, do we have a context? Does it have to do something with books and words and writing and letters if we have a scribe? And then it says a disputer of this world. What do we have? We don't use the word disputer. It's not a textual disputer. Instead of disputing, a synonym, a critic, a textual critic. God says, where is the scribe? Where is the textual critic? I will take my little babes who trust in me, and I will show them that you don't have a clue about the words of God and I will preserve my words inviolate from the beginning. Samuel wrote down that, El, that Elhanan killed the brother of Goliath, and they're going to have that in the year 2005 by my mercy and providence. Amen. Look in your Bibles at Genesis 12:7. Now remember, in Galatians 3:16, in Galatians 3:16, Paul made an argument that all the promises to Abraham were going to be to Abraham and his seed. Genesis 12:7. Let me read it to you, and you follow along and see what your Bible says. Was Paul's argument based on the fact that there had to be the word "seed, a singular noun back there? Genesis 12, 7, here's the first promise to Abraham. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there and he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. If you've got the NIV, what word does it use? Offspring. Offspring. Offspring can either mean singular or plural. It's vague. It's general. It doesn't give us the argument we want. And do you think it says offspring in Galatians 3? Not a chance. What does the uh, New American Standard say? Descendants? Plural? With an S on the end? What does the Revised Standard Version say? Descendants with an S on the end. When Paul said there couldn't be an S on the end, it had to be a singular. They signed off on a Bible that had a plural. Do you understand what God's given us? Do you understand how He has blinded them and opened our eyes to the truth? you want to know what the fulfillment of that is? How can it say, Unto thy seed will I give this land? Because the real land that Abraham understood was not Canaan. It was heaven. It was heaven. Who cares about Canaan? Are you kidding? Who wants to live in a desert? It's one of the poorest places on earth. Are you kidding me? If these are spiritual promises, Abraham understood them that way. Abraham never had any of that land. Neither did Isaac. Neither did Jacob. It wasn't until 400 years later that they had it temporarily. Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. You say, well, that's just one of the... Which one do you want? You say, it's just one of the promises to Abraham. Pick one. Do you know where they all are? You want it to? Do we need to try more? It's going to work on them all. The la- Let's go to the last one, 24-7. They're all between twelve-seven and 24-7. Genesis 24-7, The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house, and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. you got a problem with that verse, don't you? Because it's not seed, it's offspring or it's descendants. Because they are taking away all the promises in Jesus Christ and giving them to the Jews. Is that, they are le- that corruption was made by legalizers who wants to put salvation in the Jewish tradition from Moses and Abraham rather than in Jesus Christ. Do you know what Galatians 3 goes on to say? And, and if ye be Christ, then are ye... Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Jews or Gentiles, we are the seed of Abraham by being in the singular seed, Jesus Christ. Amen. That is so beautiful, and that argument is destroyed when they go back into the Old Testament. Now, old, when, it, when you've got a New American Standard Version that says descendants in the Old Testament, all you that are going to Bob Jones, when you've got an Old Testament that says descendants... And Paul says, the Old Testament says seed, singular. It does not say seeds. It doesn't have an S back there because it's very important for it to be singular. What is Galatians 3.16 saying about the New American Standard Old Testament? It's wrong. It ain't Scripture. It's okay to use ain't. Peter did. Everybody knows what ain't means. One more. First Samuel 13.1 Thank you for the Tower of Babel on our website, Webmaster. First Samuel 13.1 I get more fun out of this than anybody has ever got at any amusement park. First Samuel thirteen one. Oh Lord, you wrote such a beautiful book. And there is a little lesson in the Hebrew as to why they can't figure it out, but they don't know Hebrew. But the men that, that translate the King James Bible sure did. They knew how to figure out a little Hebrew idiom. They've done it in many places. This is. Here we go. Here's what it says Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel. And then it goes on in the second verse to describe what he did in the second year. Why is a verse worded like that? For one year, Saul didn't have to do anything. He just had to reign. There wasn't any real big issues for him. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. Now, would you please tell me what in the world you have in your Bibles in that verse? Brother Red, So, so Saul took the throne at the age of one. Now the Bible says he was from the shoulders up, taller than anyone else in Israel. His mother had a difficult labor. <laughs> Isn't that what the Bible tells us that he was from here up? He was one year old and he reigned two years. Now see all their Bibles in Acts 13:21 say that Saul reigned 40 years over Israel. So they got a real big problem, don't they? All of them in Acts thirteen twenty one know that Saul reigned for forty years because it was in Paul's sermon in Acts thirteen. Do you want to hear another one? I was going to say NIV's got, got better light than that though. Better light than what, redhead? Oh, yeah. Let's hear it. Because Saul was thirty years old when he became, became king and he reigned over Israel forty two. Well, he was thirty when he started and he reigned forty two years. Does someone have something better, Bernie? He was 40, we've heard 1, we've heard 30, and now it's 40? You said 2, you said 32, you're saying 42, or 42 and 32. I'm getting confused. I know. M- Matthew? The Southern Baptist Bible of 2004, because that's the most current, it's got to be the best. Forty two years back to the NIV. Eric. The revised standard says Saul was. Dot, 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 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned. Dot, 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 and two years over Israel. The footnotes, however, say this number is lacking in Hebrew. Two is not it's lacking in their manuscripts. Did did Elijah have fun making fun of the prophets of Baal? Is there a place for a little bit of this in the house of God? They are tampering with the words of God, and they deserve every bit of this punishment. And I wish they were here. They signed off on that. Dot, dot, dot. We don't even know what it is. And we don't want to embarrass ourselves further by adding another one. But I know there's a whole lot more. Does anyone else want to contribute one of the differences? I know reading in public is just terribly difficult. But there's a whole lot more Bibles out there, and they don't all read that. There's some more reading. The seminary Bible says Saul was forty years old when he began to reign, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. There's another. There's a different form of corruption. Did God say He would make foolish the wisdom of this world? Amen. He has done it and you have a Bible that has read the same way for 400 years, and they still can't figure it out, these numbers are lost in the Hebrew? I wonder why they didn't think so. Whether it's their manuscript, or whether they were able to interpret a Hebrew idiom, and it is a Hebrew idiom, they have the truth. We have the truth because we've got the King James Bible. Bless God, love God, love His Word, read His Word, obey His Word, and fight for His words. His every single individual word. We do not have a dot, dot, dot anywhere in our King James Bibles. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word, and may it excite your hearts to remember what we heard in the first sermon this morning, that Abraham believed God and gave glory to God, being strong in faith. He wouldn't stagger, and he wouldn't consider anything that opposed the words of God. You've been given some material that you can use to bolster your own faith and to speak to others who have questions about all these versions that are coming out that do not have the words of God.